Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, May 4th, and may the 4th be with you. Today, our very own media whisperer, Dylan Byers, stops by to tell us about the White House Correspondents' Dinner weekend and what he learned about Semaphore, the still mysterious Justin and Ben Smith startup, and also how CNN plans to pivot away from the tumultuous regime of Jeff Zucker. And later on in the show, Teddy Schleifer will be here to tell us about Elon Musk's non-Tesla, non-Twitter, and non-SpaceX investments. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, I'm talking today to Dylan Byers, who is a couple days fresh back from Washington, D.C., where he was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and all the attendant parties. Still recovering. Still recovering. (laughs) Now, you talked about this on Monday's Media Monday podcast about the sort of energy that you felt there, that people felt after COVID, certainly after Trump, that, you know, it was good to sort of be back and toasting each other and patting everyone on the back and partying. Um, But, you know, you know, I saw like on Instagram, some CNN friends and a bunch of media friends who were at different parties. I got a little FOMO too. You know, I was Mm -hmm. like, this is, this was a little fun weekend. Um, And it's just, you pick up lots of fun little gossip. And so on that note, the two big things I want to talk to you about today are, is it semaphore or semaphore? Semaphore. Semaphore is I, at the, least to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, this is the uh, <laughs> TBD media venture started by Justin Smith, formerly of Bloomberg, and Ben Smith, our friend, uh, formerly of Politico, New York Times, BuzzFeed, and they want to change the world. Um, they had a little party mm-hmm. on Friday, I believe. Yes, at Justin's house. Well, I ask lots of guests this whenever they go to like a party like this. What were they serving for food and drink? But then <laughs> secondly... Did they give any more details as to what this company is going to look like? Because that's been the big question about Semaphore. Yeah. So Justin had this wonderful spread across the island in his kitchen of like all this charcuterie and cheese. And it's all wonderful. But the problem with this weekend for me, because it, it as much as it is partying and socializing and having fun, it is, of course, a work weekend. And and what I love about the White House Correspondents' Dinner is that especially if you no longer live in D.C. and you are parachuting in for 48 hours or 72 hours, is it is like shooting fish in a barrel and you get so much done in terms of meetings, conversations, gossip. The The only problem is, is that you're, you, there's so much of that that there's actually not even time to really stop and eat. So yeah, <laughs> wonderful food is on display at the semaphore party, at the at the UTA party, at the at Tammy's garden brunch, but I never eat any of it. Somehow I do manage to drink. That seems much more conducive to conversations. But um, <laughs> anyway, Ju- Justin Justin did roll out the red carpet for everybody. He has a very nice home. What he did not do is satisfy the question that, as I wrote last week, is on everyone's mind, which is what the hell is this thing? What is it going to look like? How is it going to differentiate itself in a very crowded market? And really, what is it beyond like the buzzwords of being smarter, being briefer, (laughs) being global, going against parochialism, going against partisanship? And in fact, 
Justin, in speaking at his house, even brought up the article that I had written, effectively saying that he wouldn't be able to tell people more than what we had already told him with our article. Mm-hmm. And what I was able to glean was that, yes, this will be a big global news site. It will have a lot of local and regional and national newsrooms that are publishing for local audiences, some of which will get elevated to international audiences. But the sequencing piece here is important. They are going to start very much with a focus on Washington, D.C. as their first market, plus one other market. I don't know if it's Singapore or London or what it is. But what it kind of means is that despite all the rhetoric, despite all the buzzwords, despite all the ambition, that this thing is actually going to launch more or less as another D.C. publication. It will be a D.C. publication with global ambitions. As Justin put it to me, he wants it to bring Washington, D.C. to the world and and talk about Washington, D.C. to the world. But whatever the sort of philosophy or the theory of the case is here, this thing is going to hinge, as almost all publications do, on the quality of the journalists and the journalism. And as you and I know, there are only so many really great reporters out there. And if, if Justin and Ben Smith can't figure out a way to more concretely tell people what this thing is going to look like, I think they're going to continue to suffer on the recruiting side. And and so that wasn't articulated at the party. It's never really been articulated to me. I'm bullish for the guys. I'm rooting for the guys, but still don't know what it looks like. I think you're exactly right on that front. And building a TBD newsroom in a city that actually lacks a lot of imagination about business and technology and formats and just the possibility of what news can be beyond what it already is. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And look, they've tried, I I mentioned in the piece, they, they, you know, they talked to Maggie Haberman. They, they wanted to court Jonathan Swan. I I didn't mention in the piece, but Andrew Ross Sorkin, obviously Mm -hmm. on their list. When you're talking about journalists of this caliber, who are very secure in their positions at the New York Times or Axios or CNBC, you have to have something to offer them. Now, a lot mm-hmm. of times with startups, when the vision is somewhat vague and, and, and you're really acting on faith, one of the things you offer is equity. But even here, because this is such a long-term investment for Justin Smith, and he is thinking about this in terms of decades, not years, and even the investors that he has courted are investors who he, he knows will not expect an immediate return. That is also being asked of the journalists. And so they're, they're being asked to join on 10-year vesting schedules, which, which mm. for some of these journalists is like, great, it, I, I get it, you're committed for the long term. But for most journalists who tend to be somewhat risk-averse, that's actually an impediment because you're like, okay, so you're asking me to leave my very comfortable job on the promise of a thing you can't really describe to me and you want me to wait 10 years for all of this to vest, that's a hard thing. And that's why you might go after someone like Michael Bender, who's leaving the Wall Street Journal, uh, to see if he'll be your bureau chief. And he goes to the New York Times because he doesn't have the appetite for that kind of risk, or he just, as he put it, simply didn't have the time to wait for that opportunity to roll around. I want to pivot real quick. I was just scrolling Sean McCreesh's write-up of of the White House weekend in New York Magazine. Um, He was talking about the UTA party, Disclosure, both of us are UTA clients, Um, but apparently a lot of CNN anchors and reporters were there. And so was the new boss as of this week, Chris Licht. 
Licht put out a memo this week for CNN employees, and he this paragraph jumped out at me. CNN must be a vital, relevant, and respected part of our culture. Sadly, too many people have lost trust in the news media. Wink, wink. People have also lost trust with CNN. That's my insert. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can be a beacon in regaining that trust by being an organization that exemplifies the best characteristics of journalism. Fearlessly speaking truth to power, challenging the status quo. My favorite line here, questioning groupthink. Mm -hmm. And educating viewers and readers with straightforward facts and insightful commentary while always being respectful of different viewpoints, a.k.a. Rick Wilson and Don Lemon don't go on CNN and laugh at Trump voters every night. Uh, first and foremost, we should and we will be advocates for the truth. Um, how serious is he about this? Did you talk to him about it? I did. I did have the chance to talk to him. Um, again, one of the reasons you go to go to these things. Uh, conversation off the record, but here's what I can tell you based off of what I know, the folks I've spoken with, and, and what I read in that statement. Um, when David Zaslav got the company and when Chris Licht was appointed head of CNN, there was a very big emphasis on news and facts first and journalism first. And a lot of people, I think, in concert with the fact that the Ukraine coverage was happening, interpreted that as Chris Licht is going to take CNN back to this just the facts, ma'am, no opinion, no analysis, no outspoken personality driven content. And that, as I have said from the beginning, was a, was a gross uh, misunderstanding of what was going to happen. And indeed, if you look at Chris Licht's track record, Morning Joe, CBS This Morning, Colbert, what you see him doing is actually elevating personalities and and making them, encouraging them to be more outspoken. Now, the difference here, and this is where I think Chris Licht has an enormous um, challenge and potentially an enormous opportunity, is can we do that sort of, you know, analytical, you know, uh, personality-driven programming in a way that rather than skewing left, skewing right, skewing resistance, that actually goes against the grain of conventional wisdom. Can we have more interesting conversations? Can we have more nuanced conversations? Can we have the kind of conversations that get beyond your typical left-right divide in politics? And, you know, can you do all of that without getting canceled? Um I, I think that's actually a really interesting challenge, and I know that that's something that he's going to try and do. How do I elevate the debate and the dialogue so that it is not so typical of, of the partisan landscape and that it is not and that it actually does a better job of representing conversations that maybe Americans are having in private where they're where they're not so fearful of sort of catering to either, you know, right-wing groupthink or left-wing groupthink. I think that will be really interesting. And I, I actually really hope he succeeds because I think the nature of our, like, political debate is so stifled by partisanship and by partisan expectations. All right, Dylan, thanks for the gossip as always. We'll see you All next right, time. All right, man. Okay, cheers. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Teddy Schleifer on his beat right now. Hey, Peter. Uh, happy Wednesday to you. Thanks for having me on. Um, a few things on my radar right now. So I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon in San Francisco. And tonight is going to be a big moment 
for one of my favorite characters here in Silicon Valley, and that's Peter Thiel. Uh, Thiel, as, as we've discussed on the pod before, is Silicon Valley's most energetic, most active, most conniving, smartest Republican mega donor. And Thiel, over the last year, has put about $14 million into the hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance, who is running for the Senate in Ohio. And tonight is the uh, one of the first election days of the 2022 cycle, one of the first primary days. And J.D. Vance is going to figure out tonight whether or not he is a Republican uh, nominee for the Senate in Ohio, which I think would be a, a rather strong vindication uh, of kind of Teal's wisdom, not just in sort of the $13 million or $14 million that he invested in this race, but also just in kind of the people that Peter likes to collect. You know, he sort of chose J.D. Vance out of obscurity about, you know, a decade ago. Uh, J.D. Vance approached Peter Thiel after an event at Yale Law School. Peter Thiel gave J.D. Vance a job at one of his venture capital firms. He has promoted him. He's brokered relationships between J.D. Vance and Donald Trump. Now we see whether or not all of that kind of backroom dealing and kind of grass tops cajoling matters with the people that actually matter, which is Ohio Republican voters. So uh, if you're listening to this tomorrow morning and, and J.D. Vance is the Republican nominee, you know, I don't want to overstate Teal's accomplishments here because, you know, I don't think the money was determinative in making him the nominee. I think Donald Trump was determinative in making him the nominee if he wins because Vance ended up getting a Trump endorsement. And if, if J.D. Vance loses, this is going to be a, a setback for Teal. And I wonder whether or not it's a setback for the broader Republican Party. And, and I say that because Republicans are looking for mega donors right now. Sheldon Adelson, David Koch both died recently. There are lots of conservatives who would like Teal to be the next Adelson, the next Koch. And I wrote a story a couple weeks ago saying that, you know, whether or not Teal fills that vacuum depends in part on how people do. Like, who doesn't like to win? So if J.D. Vance wins, I think that's good for Peter Teal political project. If he loses, you wonder whether or not this is his last cycle spending as much uh, as we think he is right now. Uh, the other thing on my mind is, of course, the uh, never-ending Elon Musk saga. I wrote a story uh, earlier today, published on Puck uh, earlier today, called about Elon's eccentric empire, which sort of just looks at how Musk handles money and handles his finances to date. Um, obviously, ordinarily, that's interesting, but it's especially interesting right now because, you know, the purchase of Twitter is no different than, you know, his purchase uh, of, you know, uh, a candy bar or his purchase of uh, a charitable foundation that he runs or his purchase of a car that he owns or a home that he owns. It's a personal asset. And so we looked at kind of how Elon has handled his personal assets to date looking at things like the amount of debt that Elon has been uh, extraordinarily willing to take on over the last couple of years. We look at how Elon's family office is structured. Um, so this, this storyline obviously is going to be several months um, long and everyone can hold on to their takes. But we, we are interested in understanding the Elon machine, a personal level, at a financial level. So that's up at Puck. But Peter, thanks for uh, having me. And I'm sure you and I will both be watching Ohio primary results at our former employer, CNN.com. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 